Isaiah chapter four, uh, chapter Isaiah chapter forty-four, beginning at verse one. This is the word of God. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it. And set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they they may be ashamed. Who who would form a god or, or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule, he he marks one out with chalk, he fashions it with a plane, he marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He, He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He, He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, 
Nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the, the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited to the cities of Judah, you shall be built and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying of Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Our second reading is from the New Testament, from the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 3. We're going to start reading at Acts chapter 3, verse 1, and read all the way until 4, verse Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who enter the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to, to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand 
and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as that lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of, re of, of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they said, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good, man, a, a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So far our reading from God's holy word. Our reading from our confessions this afternoon is from from Lord's Day 11. Lord's Day 11. I hope over the next three, year, uh, three weeks to go through Lord's Days 11, 12, and 13 to, 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 to take a look with you at who this Jesus is, why he's called the Christ, and what it means that he is God's only begotten Son, our Lord. But we're going to be starting with Lord's Day 11, dealing with the name of our Savior, the name Jesus. Why is the Son of God called Jesus meaning Savior, because He saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Well, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Dearly loved uh, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, everyone is looking for salvation. Everyone's looking for salvation, but the, the, the vast majority of people are looking for the wrong salvation. Either they're confused about the problem or they're misapplying the solution. See, people will seek a savior that they will look for a savior that's that's big enough for the problems that they see so if the biggest problem they see is a is a, is a shaky economy well they'll vote for a protectionist government and they will lobby their government to to spend more on regulating or propping up the economy if the main problem they see is something like international terrorism, they'll, they'll adopt a really aggressive attitude when it comes to going to war, and, and they'll be much more willing to let their governments spy on them. 
On the other hand, if people see the biggest problem facing themselves as, as, as a deadly disease that, that, that travels across the world with ease and, and spreads quickly all over the place, they'll be very willing to, to shut things down, to, to shut down borders, to shut down economies, to throw billions upon billions of dollars at the development of vaccines, and they'll be very willing to wear a mask every time they step into a building. Now, I'm not, I'm not bringing up any of these things as a criticism, I'm just pointing out that the things that people look to for salvation need to be big enough to handle whatever we need saving from. And what applies to the economy or terrorism or disease also applies to sin. If we need to be saved from sin, the solution needs to be big enough to deal with the problem. Right? So how we view our sin really determines what kind of Savior we're going to go looking for. So if, if the problem of sin is just that, well, our lives are all messed up, then, then getting, our, getting our act together and properly ordering our lives will be a good enough solution. If the problem of sin is just that God is, is, is very angry when we sin, then if we stop sinning so much and, and ask Him for mercy, that, that's going to be a good enough solution. If the problem of sin is, is just friction and hostility between neighbors, then, then some guidance from wise men or, or prophets or psychologists or, or, or sociologists is, 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 is going to be enough to, to ease that hostility and provide a, a good enough solution. If the problem is just something like international strife, then, then the UN or, or, or NATO can take care of that. But all of these all of these views of, of, of what sin is, they're all too small. All of these are, are, are relatively small problems with relatively small solutions. And, and if those were truly the only problems that we faced, then those would be the only solutions, the only saviors that we needed. But it seems like very few people in the world today seem to truly grasp the gravity of their situation. Very few people in the world seem to truly grasp just how big the problem of sin really is. Even among those people who believe in some kind of, of God besides the true God who has revealed Himself in His Word, even among those people who believe in some kind of false God, the problem is not their, their, their God's infinite and eternal wrath against sin. No, it's, it's always something smaller, something more manageable, something that people can muster up for themselves. The Buddha, for example, taught that the problem was desire. The problem was, was that our, our affections, what we want, is not right. Therefore, the, the way to salvation is to follow the, the eightfold path, uh, to cease from desire, and, and to reorder what we love. Um, the Hindu scriptures, the, 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 the Vedas, they, they lay out what, what everyone's duties are and, and they teach that if everyone does what they're supposed to do according to their class and their station, then, then the karmic cycle will reach its conclusion for them and, and they'll be released from the futility of this world. The Quran teaches that, that Allah is very mad at sin, but if we turn to Allah, if we accept the words of his prophet Muhammad, if we repent and we do the will of Allah, He will forgive our sins, not because they've been paid for, but because we have repented and He is merciful. 
than the Pharisees of Jesus' day and and rabbinical Judaism today, they teach that through careful observance of, of what the law requires, salvation can somehow be achieved. In all of those religions, those religions that are that are like the idols described in Isaiah 44, all these religions that are the work of men's hands, the product of human imaginations, in all those false religions, both the sin and the salvation need to be within reach of the observer. But in the Bible, God reveals something completely different. God reveals Himself as the, as the Creator God over all things, above all things, who looks down not only on the earth, but also looks down on heaven. We, we, we read that in, in Psalm 113 this morning. God reveals Himself as the Creator God over all things, a, a perfectly holy and a perfectly just God who created humanity to live in relationship with Him. But in our first parents, Adam and Eve, humanity chose to rebel against this holy and infinite God. And at this point in history, the justice of God demanded that one of two things had to happen. Either those those humans who, who had sinned needed to be sent directly to hell to face His just wrath for all of eternity, or someone capable of bearing His just and infinite wrath, needed to come to bear it for them. God cannot, God cannot simply forget about sin, as Islam suggests. Sin needs to be dealt with. God's just wrath needs to be borne, either by humans or by a substitute. And praise God, beloved, praise God, He has provided that substitute. He has provided for us a mediator, someone to stand between us and God, someone to bear all of God's wrath against sin. God has provided a substitute, the man Christ Jesus. And as we consider this man Jesus this afternoon, we'll do so under this theme Jesus alone can save us. In the first part of this sermon, we'll see how he's the only Savior that we have. And in the second part of this sermon, we'll see how He is the only Savior that we need. Now, the first question and answer that we're considering this afternoon is question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because He saves us from all our sins. Because He saves us from all of our sins. And if you know the Christmas story well... And we're actually looking at this passage uh, on on this coming Saturday. If you know the Christmas story well, you'll know that that what the catechism gives as the answer here, he saves us from all our sins, is basically what the angel from God told Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, when he found out about Mary's pregnancy. She will bring forth a son, said the angel, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, the name Jesus is, is, is sort of an English form of the Hebrew name Yehoshua, which means Yahweh, or the Lord, saves. So what the angel was telling Joseph was, you shall call his name the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. 
what the angel was making clear, or, or rather what, what God was making clear through the angel, was that this son of Mary, this son of God, was God's promised salvation. This son of Mary, this son of God, was the mediator that had been promised already at the very dawn of time in the Garden of Eden. This son of Mary, this, this son of Eve, would be the, the one to gain God's people the, the complete victory, deliverance from their enemies, deliverance especially from sin, and peace with their God. He is named Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. And as we've seen already, the thing that we need saving from, our sins, the thing that we need saving from is something that we could never have pulled ourselves out of given a million years. We, we simply do not possess the capacity or the holiness or the power to save ourselves from our sins. No one in Adam's race could. See, the problem of our sins is greater than we will ever fully imagine with our limited minds. The problem of sin is not just that we, that we disobey rules that, that, that make our relationship with God better. No, the problem with sin is that, is that every time we disobey the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, we are spitting in the face of the judge. We are rebelling against the just rule of our king. We are traitors. We are rebels. We are usurpers, people who are trying to steal his throne for ourselves. This was Adam's sin in the garden, and, and, and this is really the nature of every single sin that we commit. It's saying, no, I don't want to follow you. I don't want you for my king. I want to decide my own path. I have better ideas than you. I want to do what I want to do. And not only have we made ourselves guilty of rebellion, we also every day, every day we make ourselves unholy. We saw a baptism this morning. And baptism points out to us that we are impure by nature. We are dirty. We, we are not clean. That's what baptism teaches us. Baptism is like a little pretend bath, showing us that we need to be washed clean by God. We are dirty. We need to be cleaned. But we can't clean ourselves. We were born with the stain of Adam's sin deeply dyed in our DNA. And, and every day we slather ourselves with the same sort of permanent marker, adding to our guilt, making reconciliation with God more and more difficult with every single sin that we heap on. But though our sins were many and mighty, His mercy was so much more. Our sins were more than we could count, but the Savior came with endless cleansing power. There were a few men in the Old Testament with the same name who came before him, uh, Joshua the conqueror and Joshua the high priest, but neither one of those men could provide the full deliverance that God's people truly needed. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that Joshua, the conqueror, who conquered the whole land of Canaan for God's people and gave them some rest, as good as he did, he could not provide the people of Israel with the true rest that they needed. 
The book of Zechariah tells us that Joshua the high priest, as, as, holy as, he have, as holy as he may have been in everything that he did, he was still dressed up in filthy robes. And he gave the accuser, he gave Satan, the devil, loads of opportunities to accuse him until a salvation from outside of himself provided him with robes of spotless righteousness. Only a perfect, spotless Savior can provide the peace and, and the holiness that God's rebellious and unholy people desperately need. And, and, and this, beloved, this is exactly what our God provided. See, when Jesus died, when Jesus died on the cross, He died the death of an accursed rebel. Though he had never broken a single word of God's law, he died as one guilty of the very worst crimes. See, crucifixion was the worst punishment the ancient world ever came up with. Because it was so horrific, it was, it was reserved for the very worst criminals, for rebels and for slaves. And, and even in God's law to his people Israel, he made it clear that everyone who was executed in this way was under God's curse. So when Jesus died on that cross, he died a death that every one of us should have died. He died a death that every rebel should have died. Though his, his proper place was at the right hand of his father, he died as a rebel against the father's throne, bearing God's wrath against every single sin that had ever been committed against God's perfect holiness. But at the same time, when he died, he died the death of a spotless sacrifice. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him by the Jordan, he cried out, Behold, look, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. Because he knew that a spotless sacrifice was being provided by God to bear God's wrath. Truly, beloved, truly, Jesus was nothing less than a salvation given to us from the very hand of God. And so none could bear the name the Lord saves more honestly than Jesus could. And so on that day, when Peter and John came to the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon and, and, and they see that man holding out his hand, expecting a few coins from them, they are in a position to provide him with a greater salvation than he ever could have imagined when he woke up that morning. They aren't in a position to provide salvation like people provide salvation, but with some silver, some gold, the thing he's begging for. But they are in a position, as, as those who have been given authority by Christ, they are in a position to provide a salvation from God. Not a salvation from men, but a salvation from God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they say to him, rise up and walk. And when this man, when this man groaning under the weight of the fall, when he hears this command given in the name of the Savior of all mankind, he allows Peter to pull him up. And Luke, the author of Acts, he tells us that immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. 
And so he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and and praising God. Having heard the name of Jesus, listen, having heard the name of Jesus, this man's feet and his ankle bones, they had no choice but to respond. The Son by whom God created the world, the Son through whom the world's salvation came, the Son who's going to bring in His new creation. He heralded His new creation and He declared His victory over all of the powers of sin by bringing new creation healing to this man's ankles and feet. Knowing that Jesus has power to save Peter and John come to this man and they provide him with more salvation than he ever would have dared hope for. And though we were more lost than we'd ever have the courage or the imagination to admit, Jesus has provided us with a greater salvation than we ever thought we'd receive. And beloved, this Jesus' name alone can save us. Salvation is not to be sought in anyone else. From the very beginning, it was revealed that through the seed of the woman, through through Eve's line, God was going to provide salvation. So then to look for a salvation outside of God is really to trust, uh, to, to, to distrust God. If you're looking to anybody else, anything else for salvation, you are distrusting God, you are sinning against God. Salvation ought not be sought anywhere or in any person besides Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, God made it clear to His people Israel that He was the one who was providing and would provide salvation for His people. He he provided temporary saviors, but every time it was clear that God was the one who was appointing these temporary saviors. It, It was God who appointed or set apart prophets and priests and kings, and elders, and judges to provide some salvation for His people. It was also God who provided the the system of sacrifice, and, and tabernacle, and temple, by means of which He was foreshadowing that salvation that was going to come. And yet, though God made it clear in, throughout the Old Testament, though God made it clear that these were temporary shadows, the, the altar and, and, and the tabernacle and the temple and, and the, 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 the Levitical laws and so on. These were all temporary shadows of the great Savior to come. Though God made that clear, the people of Israel held on tightly to these shadows. And they even added more shadows, more, more idolatrous shadows really to, to make salvation more attainable. And by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, the religious professionals and the priests and the scribes, they're so devoted to those things that are pointing forward to Christ that they miss Jesus Himself. And so when Jesus declares Himself to be the way to the Father and and, and when He declares Himself to be the Son of God, they fail to recognize that this is God's salvation, but instead they treat Him as the enemy of God. One of the jobs of the priests was to oversee the sacrifices, to, to check lambs for defects, to make sure that everything that the, that the people brought to be sacrificed to God was absolutely perfect and, and without blemish and spot. But they failed to see God's 
perfect sacrifice when he came on the scene. Those whose job it literally was to check lambs for defects failed to see the Lamb of God when he came to the world. As Peter said to the Jews in our passage, you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead of whom we are witnesses. And he said to the priests in our passage as well, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so to refuse to recognize God's salvation, to refuse to recognize God's spotless lamb for who he is, is to sin against God. And then having failed to recognize Him, to then seek salvation somewhere else is also to sin against God. And at the same time, as Peter said to the priests, nor is there salvation in any other. So it's ethically wrong, it's morally wrong to seek salvation somewhere else, but additionally, it's just futile. It's wrong to go looking for it, and you'll never find it. As the Catechism puts it, salvation is not to be sought, so it's ethically wrong, or found. So it's just impossible to find salvation in in anyone else. And if we understand just how big our problem is, just how deep the hole is that we've dug for ourselves, if we understand that, if we understand the filth with with, with which we have covered ourselves, we'll, we'll very quickly come to understand the truth of this statement. After all, if the problem lies within me, why on earth will I look within myself to find salvation? It's just ridiculous. And Isaiah Isaiah takes great pains to point this out in Isaiah 44. It's actually a humorous satire of the whole idea of worshiping idols. He first paints this picture of a metal worker. He's, He's hard at work in his forge. He's putting all of his effort into making this idol But by the end of the day, if this man's not eating and drinking, he's just done. Mortal men cannot sustain themselves. So what business do they have creating gods to sustain them? The thing that is made is always lesser than the the person who is making it. So what Isaiah is picturing is is just illogical. It's foolish. It's stupid to think that what you have made is going to sustain you. He then paints the picture of a woodworker. Uh, The man goes off into the forest, surrounded by the might and the grandeur that has been created by the Lord God who made heaven and earth. And this man, he picks a tree. He says, oh, that's a good tree for an idol. And he cuts down that tree and he he, he splits it in half. And the first half keeps him warm and, and cooks his bread. By the common grace of God who created him, this man is nourished and he is warmed but the second half of that tree, oh, that's, that's the special half. He makes that half into a god and asks that block of wood to deliver him. Imagine the arrogance of all the illogical things to do. Surely the, the, the silliest of them all has to be the invention of false gods or, or the invention of new ways to get to the true God. Salvation simply cannot be found anywhere other than Jesus, the one sent by the Father to be the world's salvation. 
And the image of the lame man is a good analogy here to use. A a man who is lame cannot walk himself to the emergency room. And so also a fallen humanity, completely fallen, like dead on the ground, that's the image the Bible uses. We, We are like corpses on the ground. A fallen humanity cannot hope to restore itself, not by its own ingenuity, not through anything that it produces, no matter how much power or might is ascribed to those things that humanity shapes. Jesus, beloved, Jesus is the only Savior we have. He's the only Savior we have. And praise God, He's the only Savior we need. We need nothing in addition to Him. Jesus is the only Savior we need. See, there are many who hold Jesus to be their Savior. But question and answer 30 asks an important follow-up question to question and answer 29. Do they really? They say they believe in Him, but do they really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? See, there are plenty of people who, who, who recite the creeds. Uh, I, no, we didn't. I, I read from the Nicene Creed this afternoon, and that creed is, is confessed by, by people who call themselves Christians all over the globe. But question and answer 30 asks, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? Because there are people who seek part of their salvation in themselves. There are people who seek part of their salvation in saints. There are people who look elsewhere for part of their salvation. They say, well, Jesus saves me 90% of the way, but this 10% I've got to go somewhere else for. So question answer 30 asks, do they believe in the only Savior Jesus or do they believe in Jesus plus the good works of the saints? Do they believe in Jesus plus the added revelation supposedly given to Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church? Or do they believe in Jesus plus their ancestors? Or do they believe in Jesus plus certain rites and rituals? Or do they believe in Jesus plus the gift of speaking in tongues? Now, to all of these, I'm I'm sure everyone in this room, everyone in this building, everyone watching online, I'm sure all of us would with confidence say, no, no. If you're believing in any of those things in addition to Jesus, you are not putting all your faith in Jesus. You, You need a second functional Savior. But all of those examples are pretty clear cut. Mormons and Catholics and practitioners of syncretistic religions, they're clearly not putting all their confidence in Jesus. But there's a very high chance that I'm not talking to any Mormons or Catholics or or practitioners of voodoo this evening or this afternoon. No, I'm, I'm talking to Protestants, Bible people. I'm talking to Reformed Protestants at that. We should not see ourselves, though, we should not see ourselves as immune to the temptations that have been besetting God's people throughout the histories of the Old and the New Covenants. All over the place in the Old Testament, we see see people worshiping the one true God plus something else. Even when Israel is, is, is at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is receiving the law, Israel goes off to Aaron and says, well, we don't know where Moses has gone, so we don't know how to get to God, so please, Aaron, show us the way to God. And what does Aaron do? He says, well... I'll show you the way to God. And so he, he, he carves a calf. 
which is just silly. So in the Old Testament, there are, there are plenty of examples. It, it, it's not just that, but it, it, it comes again and again and again and again. And we should not see ourselves as that different from those Old Testament people. We are not immune to the temptations that have been besetting God's people throughout the histories of the Old and New Covenants. After all, even in the New Testament, in in the Corinthian church, Christians were taking pride in the preachers through whom they had come to faith and the preachers that had baptized them. And i got to ask, do we do the same thing? Maybe not in the exact way, but do we depend not only on Jesus, but also on our association with a particularly orthodox federation or denomination or local church? Are we guilty of perhaps placing undue confidence in preachers and churches when our only confidence should be the Jesus who saved us and gave us those preachers and churches? Unless we think of only the Corinthian church, what about the Galatian church? Are we like they? Are we putting undue confidence in, in, in certain fruits or, or proofs of our commitment to Christ? They placed a great deal of confidence in, in circumcision. Are, are we placing a great deal of confidence in, in maybe our ability to recite our confessions and creeds and, and our ability to, to explain these complex doctrines? Have we perhaps forsaken confidence in who we know for confidence in what we know. See, church membership and, and sitting under the preaching of the word and baptism and, and orthodox doctrine and growth in knowledge and holiness, they're all necessary. They are necessary. Never let it be said that they are not. But not one of those things will save us. Not one of those things will come alongside Jesus Christ as our confidence. Whole churches, even churches that bear the title of Reformed, have been carried off by this kind of false and idolatrous confidence, demanding that in addition to to, to faith in Christ, that, that one must also have some kind of conversion story before being granted access to the privileges of church membership. I know of a woman, and I'm sure many of you know many similar examples. I know of a woman, though she expressed faith in Christ, though she was a devoted Christian, never once participated in the Lord's Supper. And she died without expressing confidence in her eternal destiny because she had been taught in a church that called itself Reformed that she also needed some kind of conversion story, some some special secondary experience of God's grace. That is wrong. We dare not. We must not. If we are placing those kinds of barriers before ourselves or before other people who profess faith in Christ, we are denying the perfect once-for-all salvation that Jesus provides. We must not. We may not place such barriers before God's people, either ourselves or anyone else. And if such a barrier has been erected for you, Know this, you've got two options. Either you are saying that Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or you must believe that those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him everything they need for their 
salvation. And beloved, he is a perfect Savior. And if in true faith, if you accept this Savior, you have in him everything you need for your salvation. Amen.